I'm going to try a different way of teaching this evening. Um, this is a web page, actually, and I, was, I, I hadn't decided I was going to do this till later this afternoon, so I was kind of really moving my fingers trying to get all this typed out so that it could be ready for this evening. What I am going to plan to do is, uh, I, in this form, I believe that the flow of thought will be easier for teaching. And then the secondary and blessed goal of this is that I will be able to immediately transfer this to the internet, to the website, and I am also recording this series. And so you will actually be able to go online and not just listen to the series, but you can follow along on the website with the same material that I'm presenting to you at church. And so I'm hoping that this will be a real help not only to, to you who are here, of course, certainly to those that are not here as well, but I'm hoping that, that if you wanted to go through some of this material again, not only this way, I don't have to keep printing material for you. You don't have to keep track of all this material. Certainly, you won't be able to write notes, that means. But um, I think that this will be a really great way to preserve everything that's being taught. And then you can just walk through it online um, while listening to the teaching, if you'd like. Certainly still ask questions. Uh, even though we're recording, and I'll try to reiterate the questions on the microphone for um, the internet. So what, what we'll begin with, we're jumping into 1 Peter 1. Remember, we talked about the introductory material last week, who Peter is, um, who he was writing to, what, what's going on here. And as I've studied already, one of the things I've really noticed is he does hit deeply on this idea of election, Peter does. And as we've thought about the audience, who, who is the audience here? Do you remember who is the audience that Peter is writing to? It is up there. <laughs> what was that, Abby? Oh, who, oh, okay. I thought that was Abby saying it because she had her hand up. I don't even know who's saying it. Is that, is that Aletheia? Okay, good job, Aletheia. Yes, to Jews, uh, more specifically, to the, the, the strangers that are scattered. You'll notice that, um, that that's the King James. I, I'm doing something a little bit differently with the text here. I'm giving you the King James. I'm giving you the English Standard. I'm giving you the Greek, which um, you know won't be super helpful to you, but... Um, it's, it'll be there. And then I'm giving you my own translation as I read through the text, a translation that, that I'm comfortable with that kind of is not as easy and it's not as readable perhaps all the time. It won't be as readable. It'll be a little bit more uh, direct, but might give us a little bit of an idea of, of what the text is intending to reflect here. And uh, so as we think about that, um, the strangers Scattered throughout is what King James says. The exiles of the dispersion is what the English Standard says. And you say, Pastor, why the English Standard? Well, the English Standard Version is probably the best formal equivalent translation that is out there today. Um, the problem, of course, that we would have with it is that it uses the uh, a different Greek text from the King James. It uses a Greek text that we believe, has um, been edited for the worse, has omitted several um, thousands of words and phrases that uh, we believe uh, ought to be in the text. And so that is why we use the King James Version, not because of... Now, the translation is very good, but it's not inherently because of the translation itself. It's because... It is a good translation of the Greek text that we believe is the most accurate. And so that's why we use the King James. However, the English Standard, where, where the text does not deviate um, or deviate greatly, the English Standard is a good text to compare with to, to get an, another idea of the translation quality um, of the text itself. So um, the ESV calls it the elect exiles of the dispersion and uh, then as i translated it um the i liked elect sojourners dispersed throughout these areas and so the sojourners the idea there is that these are are jews who are scattered they are jews living throughout the roman empire 
and we'll talk about that a little bit more. And they are dispersed throughout that Roman Empire. And last time we finished up talking about this first phrase that Peter is an apostle. And you'll see that that's highlighted there, apostle. In the Greek, um, it's this word right here. Can anybody read that second word for me? Sophia. Apostolos. Very good. Apostolos. And um, that is the word apostle. So um, we have these first two verses, and we're going to consider the idea of apostleship here. And as we consider apostleship, the conditions of apostleship, it's really best understood by the choosing of the twelfth apostle uh, of, that should be of the Jews there, of the Jews in uh, Acts chapter 1. You recall that there were 12 apostles throughout the ministry of Jesus Christ. He chose those 12 very early on, and one of those 12 did not live to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What was the name of the apostle that died before the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Elizabeth, you know? Judas, that's right, Judas Iscariot, right? Now, we wouldn't necessarily think of him as an apostle, but he was. He was one of the 12 chosen to be apostles. He was sent out as one of the 12 by Christ during his ministry. Uh, He was probably a part of the 70 as well when they were sent out. And these 12 men were chosen apostles. Now, Judas, of course, died. Uh, committed suicide. He betrayed the Lord, and following his betrayal, he was deeply guilty, and he ended up hanging himself um, the night that he betrayed Jesus Christ. And at the uh, as we get into the book of Acts, we read of Jesus ascending into heaven, and then the apostles go about to choose a twelfth. And they say this in Acts chapter 1, verses 20 to 26. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his habitation be desolate and let no man dwell therein and his bishopric let another take. So they read this Psalm and they interpreted that someone else should take the leadership opportunity of the one in the Psalm who would be removed. Harrison, did you have a question? Where? How, how far? Okay. Very good. So uh, they say someone else should take his office. And they interpreted this that somebody needs to take, reassume this office, the 12th apostle. Wherefore, the scriptures go on to say, of these men which have companied with us, there were apparently a group of men there. All the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John unto that same day that he was taken up from us, must one be ordained to be a witness with us of his resurrection. So they said, we are going to choose of this group of men who have been with the Lord from the beginning, from the baptism of John and then all the way till the day that Jesus ascended into heaven, they must have been with us the whole time and they must have seen the risen Lord. And so the scriptures say that they appointed two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, Thou, Lord, which knowest the hearts of all men, show whether of these two thou hast chosen that he may take part of this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell that he might go to his own place. And the scriptures say that they cast lots, they gave forth their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. So he was present during the, the ministry of Jesus, he had seen the risen Lord, and finally he had been chosen by God himself. And these are, are the general apostleship expectations that we see in Acts chapter 1 uh, for this 12th apostle. Now, why 12 apostles? Why choose another? Uh, As we consider the the concept, we recognize that um, the Lord promised that the 12 apostles would sit on 12 thrones ruling over the 12 tribes of Israel in the kingdom. This was a representative body of the Lord Jesus Christ to the nation of Israel. 
And this would have been, it would have been very significant and very necessary that they had 12 men. Because this number 12, of course, ties directly to Israel and to the tribes of Israel. And so the representative body being 12 men would be symbolically and practically important to the Jews. Also, of course, as we mentioned, Jesus Christ promising that there would be um, 12, these 12 apostles sitting on the 12 thrones in heaven, ruling over the, the tribes of Israel, there, there had to be a 12. And there's controversy surrounding this, particularly because we know from the scripture that Paul becomes an apostle. And so we recognize that based upon the church's recognition of what the Lord was doing, that the Lord chose Paul to be an apostle. And we read in several texts, specifically an apostle to the Gentile world, whereas uh, these were apostles to the Jews. He was an apostle to the Gentiles. And this has led many to believe that Paul was the 12th apostle and that the 11 apostles were hasty here in choosing Matthias, and that they should not have done so because the Lord had chosen Paul. However, as we walk through the book of Acts, what you will find is that the 12 are called the 12. Uh, Matthias is never discredited as an apostle, even after Paul is saved. There's never a point in the text where you hear anything about Matthias not being an apostle or being removed from his apostolic authority or, the, or anything of the sort. And that theory is based upon the, the expectation that Paul is the only other apostle, which we know from the scriptures is not true. There were indeed at least 14 apostles, the 12, Paul, and then Barnabas as well. In Acts 14, 14, it says this, which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of, they rent their clothes and ran among the people crying out. So you don't have the context there, but the scripture specifically says apostles. Go back to the Greek, you'll find that it's plural. And that the, the apostles being spoken of here were Barnabas and Paul. And interestingly enough, Barnabas is even listed first. And if you know anything about Greek order... The Greek doesn't have to be in a certain order. Thing, words can jump around, which means word order, in a manner of speaking, whichever words come first, take on a higher emphasis. I also think of, and, and it's, this is right in that same passage, when Paul and Barnabas are mis, mistaken for being Greek gods, they were given Greek names. Paul was given the name Mercurius. Barnabas was given the name Jupiter. And if you think about the Greek pantheon, who was, and Roman, of course, those were the Roman names, right? What, what is the, uh, does anyone know the Greek name for the Roman god Jupiter? Sarah? It is Zeus, who's the, the, the head god, right? Zeus is the big guy. He, he's, he's the, 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 the head of the pantheon, the very top, which means they gave Barnabas the credit of being the greater. And Paul, Mercurius, Mercury being that the, the God that would speak forth. And so they gave him the, the role of orator, which possibly means that Barnabas was the one that did most of the miracles and Paul was the one that did most of the speaking. But interesting that they even gave Barnabas a higher classification when they mislabeled them as gods, false gods. So as we think of that, we recognize that Barnabas and Paul were both, both apostles, considered apostles, which means that the 12 were not the only ones. And that kind of invalidates this theory that Paul had to be one of the 12. Because if so, then, then Barnabas is the one that's out there hanging in the wind, right? which likely means that Matthias was one of the 12, which was a representative body to Israel. Paul and Barnabas were called out to be a representative messengers to the Gentiles. Questions on that or thoughts? Okay, so we come back to our text here. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers scattered throughout Pontus and Galatia. And you'll notice there I also highlighted the word 
elect. It's kind of hard to see the highlighting. I'll have to change the color uh, in the weeks to come. But um, elect, and um, in the ESV, as I mentioned, it says elect exiles of the dispersion. And then in my translation, unto the elect sojourners. So you notice that I did add the word elect in there in my translation as well. And this is why, because as we're reading the Greek text here, and I'm sorry, it's just like one word. I need to try to spread that out a little bit. Petros, apostolos, Jesus Christu, eklektois, parapedidemois. So we see here that, and, and here is elect strangers. So election, the elect, is actually found in verse 1, whereas in the King James, it's not actually spoken until verse 2. If you see, look in your Bible, um, that's the beginning. The word elect is the beginning of verse 2. So why is it that the King James translators omitted elect from before strangers and sent it down to verse 2? And why is it then that... that other translations decided to bump it back up. So point of emphasis here. I just explained the, the ESV and the Greek Textus Receptus place elect prior to the word strangers, but the King James does not until verse two. Now, in this case, the English Standard Version, other modern translations, they are closer to the literal order of the words in the text. But in doing so, this is interesting, they sacrifice textual clarity here. The election describes the strangers. They are indeed being called the elect strangers unto which Peter is writing. But this election grammatically is also linked directly to the purpose clause that we see. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Now it's interesting. As we read the ESV, it, would, it says this. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus and Galatia and Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God. And so it distances in language election from the purpose, whereas the King James sought to bring election and tie it more to the purpose than to the people. And I think that as a translation, I, I agree with that, that it ought to be tied more to the purpose to which they're elected, than to the people themselves. However, it's not quite as literal. And so you'll notice in my translation, I added elect twice. Unto the elect sojourners dispersed in Pontus and Galatia, uh, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God. And that's really how it should read. That elect word actually modifies the strangers and is modified by according to the foreknowledge. You say, Pastor, I'm really lost here. Give me just a moment. Let's talk about the diagram and perhaps it will become clear. We diagram these Greek sentences, a Greek diagram as with an English diagram. I don't know how many of you are, are yet working on your English diagramming, but diagramming is a fantastic way to understand how words connect in a sentence. So we see here, Peter and is writing, because we have a, a spoken there, uh, unspoken, Peter, apostle of Jesus Christ, to the sojourners, to the sojourners that are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. And so you see here, that the sojourners are the elect and the elect are elect according to, and this, as we follow this down, will be verse two. That will be all verse two. And so the election describes the sojourners, but all of the purpose, everything that, that describes the election is found in verse two. And I kind of was a little bit resentful at Peter over doing it this way. And that's going to happen a lot. I've already found it. I'm only through verse 4 in my diagramming, and I'm already kind of angry at him. Because Peter doesn't write... He, he writes very jumpy. He, he takes things and they connect all over the place. It's like 
you're having to draw lines all over trying to figure out where it's connecting. He's got this massive run-on sentence, but he writes with such a passion and such a precision that... Now, we're jumping ahead here a little bit, but but look at how he, he describes this. As you look in the black, the black squares with the white text is the translation. So, elect... Yes. So, we have the election here. And elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, that's this one here, in sanctification, or by means of is more appropriate, sanctification of the Spirit. And then unto, we see here, I'm going to have to debug this a little bit still, unto obedience and sprinkling. So can you see how thorough he is now? Number, number one, we haven't gotten here yet. I'm jumping way ahead, but he invokes all three members of the Trinity here, all three persons. But he, it is according to the foreknowledge of God, by means of the Spirit of God, unto obedience and sprinkling. So he's covering every angle. He's covering means. He's covering purpose. He's covering um, the, the degree or the reference. He's covering everything. And he does this all throughout. So that's really great because he's super precise here. And that's a blessing. But uh, this is why the King James translators bumped elect to the second half of, of the, the verse or the second half of the, the sentence so that it would connect closer to its purpose than it would connect to the people. You can agree. You can disagree. Um, it's certainly not as precise as, uh, as far as the text is concerned, but it might be a little more clear. And there's always that debate as to clarity versus precision. So, strangers. Can somebody read me this uh, Greek word for strangers? Go ahead, Sophia. Pretty close. You don't want to... Audrey? Close, not noise. What, what's that? What's uh? What's that letter there? Mu, right? Yeah, a mu. So it's moist, right? So parapidemois, parapidemois. That one's kind of a hard one to say. And parapidemos would be the lexical form. So as I give you these words, I'm going to give you the. Um, th- this is the word as it appears in the context. And most of these, of course, will be verbs. And once we get to the verbs, you can, you can parse them for me. But I'm going to be giving you a few more nouns as well. And this is the, the lexical form, the, the basic form. That would be its nominative masculine singular form. And this one is it's an adjective. You don't have to really worry about this right now, except for perhaps the plural. Um, we know that it's a plural and um, that it's an adjective. Can anybody tell me what an, how an adjective function, functions in a sentence? It's the same in the Greek as it is in the English. So, Sophia? It is a describing word. What else? What can an adjective modify? Noun. What other substantives can an adjective modify? Bell? Pronoun. One more. Nope. That's an adverb. Noun, pronoun, or other adjective. So they can they can also modify other adjectives. So adjective modifies nouns, pronouns, other adjectives. In this case, um, and the word means sojourner in a strange place, a stranger residing among natives. Now look at this. There are three occurrences of this word in the Greek. And um, in the Greek Textus Receptus, twice it's translated pilgrims, and then this one time it's translated strangers. And these other two times, in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 13, these all died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers, and here's our word, pilgrims on the earth. And then 1 Peter 2, verse 11, which we'll come to... It'll probably be a little while, but we'll get there. First Peter 2.11, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. And these are the only other two times this Greek word, paripidemos, is used in 
the Bible in the, in the New Testament, at least in our Textus Receptus. Now notice in both of these cases, the word is translated pilgrims in a context that includes a different word. Can anybody read me that word? Bell? Very good. Paracas. Paracas. And um, in this case, that word is translated stranger. Now this does make me wonder. Why did they did the King James translators translate the word stranger in Peter when in the two other contexts where the word is found, it is equated with being a stranger, but it's the word pilgrim, sojourner, one who is outside of home, which does have a little bit closer of a feel to what the word actually means. So in this case, I would say that I would much prefer, I would have much preferred if, if the King James translators had translated it pilgrim as opposed to stranger. It's not that stranger is a wrong word, but as we see how it's used in these other two verses, strangers and pilgrims, I think pilgrim would have probably, seeing that there was another word that was regularly explicitly translated stranger, Pilgrim probably would have been a better translation here. But either way, we, we uh, can do our, our simple study and we can see that, um, that the word means sojourn, that it means stranger. And by the way, this stuff is, is stuff that you all could do so easily at home. And one of, uh, in the near future, I'm going to bring a couple of resources with me to show you how you can do a study like this. It's, it's not hard. And if you have an com- uh, internet handy, it's literally like 10 minutes. And you can find all of this information on your own and be able to access where it's found, what it means, lots of resources. So um, we'll talk about that. But it, it is a word, stranger, um, that would be have the idea of a sojourner, of one who is in a, a land that is not their own, but residing among the natives of that land. Pilgrim is a good, good translation. And these are the elect strangers, the elect pilgrims. This is definitely an adjective. Again, it's, it's plural, and, and because it shares the same case, person, and number, we know that it's modifying the other substantive. This is how substantives work. When they're modifying each other, they share the person, case, person, and, and gender. So, um, or person and gender, excuse me. And we're going to look a little bit deeper into this verb or into this word, into this substantive. It is, uh, let's go ahead and have someone read it. Can someone read me the, uh, the word, Sophia? Eclectois. very good, Eclectois. And uh, it comes from eclectos, that's the lexical form. And it actually is from a different noun. Can somebody read me that one? Bell? Yes, eklegomai, eklegomai. And that means to pick out or to choose for oneself, eklegomai, to pick out, to choose. And that it comes from two different words. You'll notice there we have ek and legomai, um, ek being a, a preposition, um, meaning out of or from, and then lego, not like the toy, Nelson, um, lego here which means to speak, to say. I, I figured I'd at least get some people's attention. I'd perk some interest when I said the word Lego at least, right? It means to speak. So to speak out of is where this one to pick out or to choose for oneself. You are speaking out what you want. That's where the word eklegomai comes from, to speak out what you want. And eklektos was a, a derivation of that, meaning to choose or to select for oneself. Chosen, selected unto a purpose. This word in the New Testament is used 24 times in 23 verses. 13 times it's translated by our King James translators, elect. We find it, and I I give you all 13 here. Matthew 24, 24 and Matthew 24, 31. Um, This is Jesus as he's warning of the end times. He says, For there shall arise false Christs and false prophets and shall show great signs and wonders insomuch that if it were possible, they shall deceive the very elect. And he goes on to continue to tell them 
um, to warn them about uh, this deception. And uh, if you hear anyone saying that they're the Christ, you need to not believe it. And then at the end of this chunk, he says, and he shall send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet, speaking of God, and they shall gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So it is a select group that God will gather out of a broader group. That's the idea of elect there. We see it in Mark chapter 13, verses 22 and 27 as well. And this is the same um, warning in Mark chapter 13. For false Christ and false prophets shall rise and shall show signs and wonders to seduce, if it were possible, even the elect. And then he goes on to warn them. And he says at the end, and then shall he send his angels and shall gather together his elect from the four winds from the uttermost part of the earth to the uttermost part of heaven. We find it in Luke 18, 7. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? Again, we see that God has an elect. Um, Romans eight thirty three. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Colossians 3.12, Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering. Election directly connected to believers here and that we are to, as the elect of God, act a certain way. 1 Timothy 5.21, I charge thee before God and the Lord Jesus Christ and the elect angels that thou observe these things without preferring one before another, doing nothing by partiality. Now, those first several uses of the word election could have been Christians, could have been Israel. In uh, Colossians, Romans and Colossians, we see that this is speaking about Christians. In 1 Timothy 5, Paul says there are such things as elect angels. Titus, Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth. So again, we would um, see this as those who are believers. Uh, This is our context here, that the strangers who were scattered abroad are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace unto you and peace be multiplied. We'll see it again in 1 Peter 2.6. Peter says, Wherefore also it is contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. Who is that speaking of? Who is the chief cornerstone that God laid in Zion, elect and precious, and one upon whom others will believe? Kind of gives it away. That's right, Chorus, Jesus, Jesus. So here we see the word elect speaking of Jesus. So we've seen elect speak of at least Christians, angels, and Jesus Christ. Second John, the elder unto the elect lady and her children. We talked about this when we were in Second John. Uh, both of these two, Second John 1, 1 and 1, 13. And uh, likely speaking of those who are believers. And that's what we interpreted that to be. Um, and so we see the, the word elect used to describe at least Jesus Christ, angels, and believers in the New Testament. Now, those aren't the only times this word is used, right? Those are the only the times where it's translated elect. Seven times it's the same word translated chosen. Matthew 20, verse 16. So the last shall be first and the first last for many is called, but few are elect. Few are chosen, the exact same Greek word here, okay? Now, this is an interesting one. We'll get back to that. 22 verse 14, the same thing Jesus says. For many are called, but few are chosen, but few are elect. Luke 23, 35, and the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them derided him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he be the Christ, the chosen, the elect of God, the Messiah was called the elect one. The chosen one, elect. Romans 16, 13, salute Rufus, chosen in the Lord and his mother and mine. A man named Rufus who was one of the elect. 1 Peter 2, 4, we'll be coming across this at some point, and as well as 1 Peter 2, 9 here. 
to whom coming unto a, uh, as unto a living stone, disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. That's speaking of Jesus there as well. And then 1 Peter 2, 9, but ye are a chosen generation. The same word used of Jesus as the elect of God is used of us as Christians. A chosen generation, a royal priesthood and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. And then the final in Revelation 17, these shall make war with the lamb and the lamb shall overcome them for he is Lord of lords and king of kings and they that are with him are the call are called and chosen and faithful. So the elect are with him when he makes war and overcomes. Now, as we think about these, um, oh, and then there are a few more here, but notice, as I mentioned, that the scriptures distinguish those who are called from those who are chosen. Now, we're spending time on this word elect because the word elect is very controversial today. There's that question as to election, and typically um, the controversy is found in what we would call Reformed theology. Reformed theology, and specifically their, their uh, belief of salvation, which is called Calvinism, believes that, that people are chosen before time either to become Christian or not to become Christian. They are chosen to be to, to heaven, which means by proxy that others are chosen to hell. And they call this unconditional election, that there are no conditions upon which the election of God can be changed, but that he has chosen who would be saved from eternity past. And if you are chosen to be saved, you will be saved. And if you're not chosen to be saved, you can't be saved. But when we see something like this, now the word elect here, uh, of course, it's used and it's used of several things. Now, number one, as we think about election, if angels are elect and Jesus is elect and Christians are elect, then it's likely not, it can't exclusively be talking about salvation, can it? I mean, Jesus doesn't need to be saved. And the angels, we could debate as to that one, right? Because you could say, well, at some point they made their choice, but it's certainly not salvation in the sense of the word that we would speak of it today because they chose either confirming their holiness or falling and then they were stuck in their choice. They either chose to be one of the elect angels that followed the Lord or they chose to be a fallen angel who, fo who followed Satan. And so this election in the scripture cannot speak exclusively of salvation. And then we have this phrase that Jesus used twice in Matthew 20 and 22, for many are called, but few are elect. If election is unconditional, as Reformed theology would say, then how could anybody who is not elect even be called? But the scriptures say, Jesus said, many are called, but few are elected are chosen, all right? And so the idea that, that God would call if man cannot answer would, would be directly contradictory to what Reformed theology would state, which is that only those who are elect can, can receive anything of the Lord uh, because he has to enliven them by faith. As a matter of fact, many hyper-Calvinists believe that regeneration comes prior to faith because you can't even have faith without regeneration. Interestingly enough, just recently, John MacArthur, who was kind of one of the representatives of the Calvinist movement, specifically said he can't find in the Bible anywhere where regeneration comes before faith and he does not believe regeneration comes before faith, which made people very angry, made him uh, kind of, made a lot of Calvinists very angry at him. But at least he, he's honest with the Bible in some respects. So, um, Jesus is called elect. Angels are called elect. Many are called, but few are elected. Three more uses of the word, and this is just elects, uh, plural here, uh, and it's speaking possessively. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Same in Mark chapter 13, verse 20, and then in 2 Timothy 2, verse 10. Therefore I endure all things for the elect's sake, clearly speaking of Christians here that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Are there any questions?
about our overview of election in the New Testament, this word eklektos as we find it in the New Testament? Any thoughts? Confusion? Sophia? Um, no, because the word elect, eklektos, means to select, to elect, to choose. So I think it's a fine translation. Um, what it what it does do is um, if we leave it translation or if we leave it as chosen, um, it doesn't connect itself as closely. You have to do a little study before you collect, connect it to the word elect in in scripture. And I think if if a lot of people who are are just surface level believing what the Calvinists and Reformed theology say, on the surface level, they read things like First um, Peter chapter one and the ESV and several modern translations, they separate that word elect from its purpose. And so already there's a distance between the election and what they're elect according to and unto. And so there's already that, that little bit of distance there. And then they start looking at other places where the word elect, if they just look for the word elect in a concordance, come up in scripture and they find these places. But what they don't find are some of these places where it's chosen. Because it is translated a different word. Now, why did the King James do this? And why do Bibles do this? Well, because for the sake of, um, well, for two reasons. Number one, uh, a word can have several different flavors, can't it? Uh, even though a word has a definition, there can be several different flavors of any given, defini- uh, any, any given word. And so a translator will choose to use a word that's similar but might have just a slightly different flavor to it, a slightly different perspective uh, that, that they feel might be a little more accurate to the text, but, but still be a good translation, presumably. Secondly, um, these translations are meant to be read, which means they do need to flow. And if you did a one-to-one, I don't know if you've ever um, used an interlinear uh, Bible, but if you've ever used an interlinear Bible, typically they have the text. And then they have kind of a, a literal translation on the side. And if you've ever tried to read that literal translation, it flows terribly. And so it would be very difficult to read and particularly difficult to memorize. And so the translators would often use um, different glosses of the same word. We call them synonyms, right? Words that mean the same, but they're a different word. They use synonyms to, to vary things, to keep things a little different, to make things sound better. If you're writing... And you're writing a book report and mom reads that book report and you use the same word like six times in one paragraph. She might say, or dad might say, hey, find a couple synonyms just to break up the repetition of this word. Keep the meaning, find a different word. It'll flow better, it'll sound better. And so translators would do that. They would change the words just to make it flow a little better as well. So bad translation, no. But it does mean that we have to dig a little bit if we're gonna understand that this is indeed the same word. And if we're going to dig and, and use these words as, as doctrinally important, then we need to understand that when Jesus says many are called but few are chosen, he's using the same word that Peter's using when he calls these readers elect according unto the foreknowledge of God. Good question. Any other questions or thoughts? Now, interestingly enough, and, and this shouldn't surprise us, election is a, is a topic spoken of in the Old Testament as well. And in the Old Testament, uh, I'm sorry I couldn't get a Hebrew font working for tonight, but it's the Hebrew word bakir, and it means elect or chosen. If you were to look in a Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, you'd find eklektos as the word, and it's used 13 times in the Old Testament. Eight times the King James translators translated it chosen. First Chronicles 16, 13. O ye of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. Israel was called the elect of God. And this is national Israel, children of Jacob, not, not even just spiritual Israel here. Notice it's not, it, it says Israel, his servant, but it says the children of Jacob are his chosen ones. This is speaking of the nation of Israel, their elect. Um, I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David, my servant. David was called the elect. Um, Jacob was called the elect in Psalm 105, 6. Um, Israel again in Psalm 105, 43. 
Israel in Psalm 106.5. Moses in Psalm 106.23. Isaiah 43.20, Israel. And Isaiah 65.15, speaking of Israel. Um, National Israel, David and Moses, and Jacob as well. And it's interesting, and the King James translators, I believe, did this on purpose. And Sophia, this may be a part of, we might want to dig a little more into this, because this may be a part of why they chose to do what they did in the New Testament as well. In the Old Testament, it appears that the King James translators only used the word elect to translate Bakir when it was speaking of Messiah. And they used the word chosen when it was speaking of someone other than Messiah to distinguish Messiah. Now, we know we don't see that in the New Testament consistently. It's not only speaking of Jesus. We see it speaking of the church. We see it speaking of angels. But it might be that they had a little bit more of a reason for changing from chosen to elect uh, in the New Testament that we just haven't really discerned yet. Because look at the four times where we see elect. Isaiah 42.1, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect in whom my soul delighteth. I have put my spirit upon him. He shall bring forth judgment to the Gentiles. That's, that's Messiah. That's Christ. Um, oh, no, here we see Israel. So there goes my theory. Isaiah 45, 4 speaks of uh, Israel, his elect. Um, For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect. And notice, though, it's, it's when it, 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 Jacob becomes Israel, that it goes from Jacob, my servant, to Israel, my elect. Um, probably speaking of the man still, not the nation there. Isaiah 65, 9, I will bring forth a seed out of Jacob and out of Judah, an inheritor of my mountains, and mine elect shall inherit it. And so that would be Israel as well, uh, perhaps the church also there. And then Isaiah 65, 22, they shall not build and another inhabit, they shall not plant and another eat, for as the days of a tree are the days of my people and mine elect. Boy, I thought there were more of Messiah there. I, only one was Messiah. So yeah, you can just uh, totally disregard what I said there. I thought a couple of those were Messiah at least. Uh, my elect shall long enjoy the work of their hands. Um, all speaking of a group, an elect group there. So God's chosen, God's elect, Messiah, Israel are all there. And then one more, choose. Second Samuel 21, 6. Let seven men out of his sons be delivered unto us and we will hang them upon Uh, up unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. So Saul was called God's elect as well. So as we observe what's going on here, look at all of the objects that God, that, that the Bible says are elect throughout scripture. Messiah, angels, national Israel, David, Moses, Saul, the church, all called God's elect. And as one considers the objects of election, all of these here. Maybe I can draw again. Not like that. All of those there, the objects of election. It becomes apparent rather quickly that election is a term that must have a broader application than salvation. Messiah doesn't need salvation. He was never saved, right? Not everyone in Israel was saved, and yet the nation of Israel was called elect. But we know that they weren't all saved, right? As a matter of fact, that was the big problem, wasn't it? That because they saw themselves as elect, they said everybody who is in Israel must be right with God because we are God's elect. We are God's chosen people. They were actually God's chosen people. They just equated their election with salvation. Isn't it funny? how that same error is going around today, that people are equating election with salvation. It's the same error that Israel fell into where they thought that because they were God's elect people, they were saved. Now, in this case, today, it's a little bit different, right? Because um, they just see, that they, they still see election as only those who are saved today. But they got this same error that equates salvation with election individuals being called elect, it's always talking about some specific task or purpose that God had designated them for. Some specific task, some specific purpose. 
As we continue to consider election, we will see nothing of salvation, only of purpose. Peter's only going to speak of purpose. It is much more consistent then, and we'll see this as we continue, to see election and predestination as the result of our our relationship with God, not the cause of our relationship with God. That we are elect because of our relationship that that we have with God, that it's not our election that initiated our relationship with God. In other words, when we get saved, we become one of the elect. And this is not far outside of reason, right? If, you know, we have members at Legacy Baptist Church. You become a member when you are, when you request it, and then the church votes and invites you to join with us. At that point, you become a member. You were not a member before you were chosen But when you became one of the chosen, you became a member. You are now one of the elect. And so it's not unreasonable for us to see a group of people that could be called the chosen. Who were. Who who you entered into that group of being chosen at the moment that you were saved. Israel was elect because she had entered into a covenant, the Mosaic covenant with God that made her elect. Moses was elect because he willingly followed the Lord's call, the burning bush. Saul was elect because he had been anointed by God to be king. David was elect because he had been anointed by God to be king. Messiah was elect because he had obeyed the Lord even unto death. Angels are elect because they follow God rather than following Satan. I don't like that when I close out of that, I have to go all the way to the top. So election is, and this this would be our operative idea here, election is not a, is um, the result of our relationship with God, not the cause of our relationship with God. As the elect, each of these individuals had a purpose to fulfill in God's plan. But we're still not compelled to accomplish that purpose, are we? Israel was called the elect, but Romans chapter 11, verses 17 through 24 speaks of the olive tree. And Israel was removed from the olive tree and the church was grafted into the olive tree. And what does Paul warn there? I'm going a little overnight, so I'll keep you, try to keep you awake here with a question. What, what, what does Paul warn in Romans 11 about the church and being grafted into the olive tree? What's his warning there? Anyone remember? Sarah? Why not? What, what, would, what would be the consequence of being cocky or failing to do what God had asked? Yeah, yeah. God says if, if, if God removed Israel from his olive tree, then can't he, re- then be careful. He could, he could just as easily remove you as well, the church. He could just as easily remove the church from his olive tree. Now, if the olive tree of God's election there is salvation, then Paul just said, be careful, you can lose your salvation. But see, he was talking about Israel being cut off and it wasn't, Israel's election had nothing to do with salvation. It had to do with a purpose. It had to do with a task. That they would be rightly related to God so that they could show the world how to be rightly related to God. That was their purpose. They failed. So God removed them from the olive tree of his purpose. And he grafted the church, this group of Gentiles and Jews who have been born again, into that purpose. And Paul says, be careful, because if you fail to see your purpose and accomplish your purpose... God could just cut the church off and use some other group of people to accomplish. Now, we know from prophecy that's not going to happen. Prophecy tells us that that's not going to happen, that the church will be the body that will endure up till the time where Jesus Christ comes and finishes his plan with Israel. I mean, unless there's something way, some huge mystery that is still yet to be revealed 
that, that um, we don't know about. But unlikely, very, very unlikely with the prophecy that we have that that's the case. So that being said, we, we know that the church will endure. That's the body of believers, uh, uni- the, the universal church, the prospective church, however we want to call it. But if the church could theoretically be removed and Israel did fail at its purpose, this must not be salvation, folks. It must be something else. And that is, that is purpose. That is what they were elect unto. And I hope that we've seen tonight that election does not explicitly speak of salvation. All right? And in fact, we'll, make, we'll, we'll see as we di- dig a little deeper into Peter that this election he's speaking of is not, he doesn't even mention salvation as, as the root of this election uh, as um, the that as the the end goal of this election, this election is unto something very different from salvation. The election is for the purpose of the scriptures say obedience and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. So we'll have to learn what that means. Are there any questions? Hope. No explicit reference. Not even in Revelation. Um, well, the, uh, this the, let's let's take a look at the Revelation. Elect uh, it was is it chosen? That had the Revelation. These shall make more, war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them, for He is the Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and they that are with Him are called and chosen and faithful. So uh, that's not explicitly Israel. No. Um, now we do see the hundred and forty-four thousand, and they are called the sealed. Um, not, or and, and any word that might be chosen or elect, it's at least not this Greek word, elect, eklektos. It would be a different Greek word. Um, so yes, we don't see that. Um, we do see, and, and I say this because when we look at chosen, and when we look at Matthew 24, we believe Matthew 24 is speaking of the time of the tribulation. It's not speaking of the time leading up to. Uh, quite regularly, people quote Matthew 24 as the time leading up to the tribulation, wars, rumors of wars, earthquakes, all that stuff. And then they also speak of um, the, um, I don't know if it's in here. No, they speak of uh, Jesus saying that, you know, not when, when I'll return and there's two in a bed and one will be taken and another left and two in a field and one will be taken and another left. That's not speaking of the rapture as we would see it today. That's speaking of the second coming. And the reason why we know that is because when we look at the parable, uh, uh, that the parable is connected to this, and when we look at this passage, we see that the ones who are being taken are being taken for judgment. They're not being taken for deliverance. And the rapture is when the Lord takes out his own for deliverance. And then there is a final a second rapture, we might say, at the end of the tribulation, and this is where the Lord removes the unrighteous and the righteous stay. And we see that clearly in the parables, uh, the parable of the wheat and the tares, right? Jesus says, he gives this parable of the wheat and the tares, and he says that a man sowed wheat, and then an enemy came and sowed tares among his wheat, weeds. And then as they grew, the servant said, Lord, there are tares in your wheat, there are weeds in your wheat, Should we pull them up? And the Lord says, no, 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 because if you pull up the tares, you might pull up the wheat also. And we can't have that. So wait until they are both full grown. And then what is the order in which he tells them to harvest? Do you recall? What what, what does he say to pull up first? The tares or the wheat? The tares. He says, then pull out all the weeds, throw them into the fire, and then gather the tares into my barn. Wheat into my barn. And so the idea there is that as these two grow together, in the end of the age, the wicked will be removed. And you say, well, is that, does that mean that the rapture will happen after? No. No. Jesus had nothing. He was not speaking of the church age at all there. He was speaking to a Jewish audience about the Jews' circumstance. And the Jews' circumstance is this. The church is here. The church will be removed. God will pick up his program with the Jews again. And there will be 
a group of Jews, the, the, the wheat, and then there will be the tares, and he'll remove the tares before he, he gathers the wheat into his barn. And that will be entering into the millennium. And so we see this in the parables as well, that there is almost a second rapture. There's a rapture of the just, the rapture of the church, and then there's a rapture of the wicked at the end of the seven years. And uh, so I would, I would impose... Israel onto Matthew 24 and Mark 13, but I would do so based upon my interpretation of eschatology, not because it explicitly says it's Israel.